Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today we have a two-parter. I'm going to do a follow-up on martial arts from yesterday, on some limitations of martial arts, some of my thoughts on martial arts, what I love about martial arts, and what I think is a huge problem uh, with martial artists in general and their attitudes toward the concept of the best art, or some things we tried to cover yesterday, but I'm going to do it. A lot more graphically today. I'm going to do it a lot more real world today. I'm going to talk about bloody life and death situations today and where those limitations are. I'm going to warn you in advance. Um, of course, I do use adult language on the show. That's pretty much unknown, so I don't you know, say this every day. But for those of you that let kids listen, if you have younger kids that you don't want hearing about true violence Uh, you may want to at least listen to the first half of today's show first and decide whether or not it's suitable for your children because I'm not going to hold anything back. I'm going to, I'm going to tell the truth about what really happens and I do believe that it will be beyond what children of some age may be needing to hear and it's up to you to determine what that age is for your children. So please know that in advance. Uh, then I have a guest interview for you with, uh, a, a, a lady named Carolyn Vyadinov who is um, kind of an expert, I guess you would say, on what you would call green burials or a simple burial. Uh, I'm doing that interview for a couple of reasons. Uh, I'll tell you about why as we get more into today's show. Um, but I think it's a subject that we need to discuss and can do a lot for us as far as um, uh, reclaiming reality when it comes to dealing with death and possibly... Um, removing one of the largest expenses of, of being a human being, which is dying. Um, and I think that's another subject we need to have today. So these are both subjects that are going to get into mortality. And again, those of you with kids, you may want to listen first, though I don't think the second half really is anything children shouldn't hear, but you may want to decide when and how. Okay. Before we get into that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Western Botanicals. You know, when I'm not feeling well, like I, I was recently, um, I always turn to herbal remedies first. Now, to get me through the night and to be able to sleep during when I had all this congestion last week, I did use some over-the-counter medication, specifically Sudafed, because, well, I can't get Actifed anymore because, well, we won't go there, but unintended consequences of the government solving a problem, basically. Actifed doesn't exist anymore, not the original formula. But day-to-day -day going through it, you know, I use something like Ricola drops, because uh, lozenges, because they're a, an herbal blend, uh, some sugar in them too, but and they taste good, and, and they do a lot to help with your throat. And there's some other things Uh, that I used as well from Western Botanicals. And it's because I believe that your first course of action in remedying things or tonifying the body to protect it and keep, stay healthy should be what's already available in its pure, natural, and raw form. And when I need something, I go to Western Botanicals and they have it. When I need something and I don't know what it is, I call Western Botanicals and they're always helpful and they can always tell me. And trust me, if you need something other than herbals, if you need traditional medicine, they're going to say, hey, this is beyond what we do. You need to really go see your doctor. So you know you can trust them. Everything you'll find there is either organically grown or wildcrafted. I have been wildly happy with Western Botanicals since the very first time I did business with them. And if you have any needs when it comes to herbals, I suggest that you make them your first stop. And remember, they support the Member Support Brigade, so you get their premium membership for free. That's a $50 value. All you do is make a phone call, and they'll set you up. Saves you 25% on all orders and basically pays for your MSB membership with one benefit. So they're a great supporter of the show and the community as well. Next up today, Harvest Eating, the awesome chef Keith Snow, who will teach you to uh, make cooking a life skill. Check out Keith's site at harvesteating.com. Check out his really cool seasonings, all his videos, all his blogs, all the recipes, and his awesome, awesome podcast. Again, harvesteating.com, where you will learn to cook seasonally and locally. And all that great stuff I tell you to grow, all those weird things you never heard of before you found the Survival Podcast. You can make part of your backyard orchards, permaculture projects, gardens. Hey, Keith will tell you what to do with it. And the big thing is he focuses on technique over recipe so that once you have the techniques and the concepts and the combinations of flavors down, 
You can take anything and make great food. And that, folks, is a survival skill. Live off MREs for six months and you'll see what I mean. Next up, check out 13skills.com. If you haven't already, check out TSP Mint, check out TSP Gear, and check out Walking to Freedom. Those are all great ways that you can interact with other members of our community and or support the show. Um, with that, I want to go ahead and get into uh, kind of the first half of our main topic of today's show. And, and that is, I want to talk about martial arts, and I want to talk about it both fondly and not so fondly at the same time. Before I say the things that I'm going to say that are going to sound negative, they're really not negative, they're just limitations that we need to understand. And I want you to understand that I personally have a deep love for martial arts, with a heavy emphasis on the arts. Um, I studied under a guy named Lee Barden, who is probably one of the most amazing persons in the world with nunchucks that you will you will find anywhere. Uh, that's actually you know kind of popularized a version of chucks that uh, I think that when a lot of people first see them, they think they're not as powerful or not as useful or functional as a weapon, and they are amazing. And he is a master of what he calls flow, and. Uh, It is something that stayed with me, and I don't practice a lot. In fact, I am, after yesterday's conversation and actually reaching out to Lee um, to try to get him on the show, by the way, um, I mean, this is a guy I studied with when I was 11 years old, to tell you how long this guy's been you know, doing what he does, and winner of, of multiple competitions and things like that. And, uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of rekindling that relationship there and, uh, I'm going to actually get some of the instructional DVDs so I can begin to practice these, the weapon arts again, primarily for the enjoyment of it, not so much for the, the, the combat side of it. And, and because of what I learned from Lee, I can pick up anything and, and pretty much use it as a weapon with some pretty cool ways that, that, The, the movements flow together, and it was a, it's something that I think you have to experience to really appreciate. Um, I studied Tai Chi for quite a few years. Um, I taught martial arts as part of fitness training in the military. Uh, I, of course, studied quite a bit with Val Ryazanov on the Sistema system, and I've worked in other systems and arts over the years. Um, I really enjoy uh, sword play and sword fighting. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for all of the martial arts. And I, again, I want you to understand that I, I really have a love for the discipline, the artistry itself, the flow, the centering components to it, uh, the way that it actually helps focus the mind and body together as one. And I absolutely believe that studying martial arts is one way to improve your survivability And it can help you stay alive in a confrontation. And it can help you maybe not even stay alive, but in a confrontation it can that it, it would just result in serious injury. It can make serious injury, non-injury, or minor injury. And it, it is one of the best things you can do to mentally and physically train your body. Now that I've said that, I think most martial artists, when it comes down to how effective whatever art it is in real world, true life and death combat scenarios are full of themselves and full of shit and overconfident. And I think that it stems from the belief or the claim that there is a best martial art or a perfect martial art. And nothing could show that more than a comment made by Rolando uh, on the show yesterday. Let me read Uh, not both comments, but, well, let me actually read both comments, because I want, this actually shows the, the problem, and Rolando's not a bad guy, he's making valid points, he's missing where the conclusion leads to. I'm so glad we begun to talk on this subject, but just like beekeeping series, we need more than just this guy's, Young Smith's perspective. Normally Jack is spot on on just about everything, but I 100% disagree with Jack comment, uh, comment Jack made about grappling. It was something like, I'll learn it if I have to, but I avoid it at all costs. And I just want to clear up where he's saying that. No, I'll learn it because I have to, okay? But I'll avoid it at all costs, not the training going to the ground. That's what I meant when I said that yesterday in case there was any misconfusion. Not I'll avoid the training, I'll avoid in a combat scenario going down to the ground at all costs, okay? 
I'll explain why in a minute. He went on to say, because you never know if some bad guy has a buddy with a knife or something like that. My belief is to become a good grappler, wrestler, jiu-jitsu guy, so you have the ability to keep the fight on your feet. That's why the guys in the UFC train so much on takedown defense, so they can keep the fight standing there. Knockout uh, of the night, per, per se. I might be a bit biased because I'm a career wrestler now in jiu-jitsu and a background in Army combatants. It's my opinion that Matt Larson of the Army Combatants Program would break the whole subject wide open. And then he says again, forgive me if I just quoted you, Jack, but this is something near and dear to my heart. I believe the best martial arts is, quote, mixed martial arts, end quote. It's proven time and time again in the cage ring, octagon street, or whatever. It is the, in the core of mixed martial arts is boxing and kickboxing, wrestling, jiu-jitsu, and judo. Just my opinion. Thank you for giving me a forum where I can speak my mind. And again, I'm not putting Rolando down. This is, this is how the entire community, except for maybe 1% of it, tends to think. Not necessarily in agreement, but they'll make a case for whatever it is they're training for or been trained to do or whatever they feel is best, which is natural. We all tend to make a case for what we feel is best, but it leaves out the harsh, cold reality. This is the part where I've said some of you may not want your younger children specifically to hear some of what I'm about to say, so I'm warning you yet again. Here's my response, and then I'll talk more about it. You're entitled to your opinion, And I am more than justified in mine. The last thing anyone with a brain should want, all capitals want, not end up with, but want is to go to the ground in a street fight. At that point, you are most vulnerable to additional attackers. That doesn't mean we don't learn to grapple. But if it isn't in the ring, you better learn to get the hell up as soon as possible. The biggest problem I have with martial arts is the blind ignorance within it to real combat. Real combat is not in the octagon, not in the ring, not a dojo. That is sparring and organized dueling, for lack of a better term. Go to the ground in the wrong place, and guess what happens to you? You die really fast. Again, that doesn't mean you don't train on how to do it, but you better get the point I'm making or in the wrong place, it could get you killed. Let me ask you how hard it would be for me to walk up to you and any other person and kick either or both of your brains out of your skull with one swift stomp while you roll around together? How hard would it be for me to slit your throat, stab your kidney, stomp on your larynx? How hard for three of your opponent's buddies to do all of that at the same time? Taking a fight to the ground in a real-world scenario is stupid because of what you don't know. You don't know the guy is alone. You don't know if people are there are people there who absolutely will kill you if given the chance End of story. Ground fighting is for the ring and for when you end up on the ground. Your claim that MMA is the best is more proof of what many martial artists don't know or perhaps don't want to know. Again, the ring, the octagon, etc. is not and can never be combat. And frankly, neither is two dumbasses who, quote, take it outside, end quote. Real combat is when an untrained person takes a knife in a prison yard rush with no warning and opens up your guts. Real combat is when four guys grab you with zero warning and they don't freaking gather in a circle so you can try to play Bruce Lee. Real combat is when a guy ambushes you as you get into your car, striking you in the back of your head with a hammer. I have witnessed or seen the aftermath of all of these as actual events. I am telling you most of the MMA attitude doesn't do shit in those instances. It then goes to 100% survival instinct, and forms, katas, arm bars, etc. are all gone. It is bloody and livered eye. I knew a Marine that went to jump school alongside me. He went out on a weekend alone, which was a big mistake with townies in the Fort Benning area. He ended up coming back to base with massive stitches in his face, neck, and ears, not from knives, just from a beating. Apparently, somehow he upset or insulted some townies who never acted as if that was the case. They bought him a few beers and asked if he wanted to go to another bar. He said sure, and six guys and he headed out. They attacked him from behind, beat him, stomped on him, etc. He was a tough guy and a big guy. He gave as good as he got. He grabbed one guy by the throat who ended up seriously injured, well-deserved. But what kept him alive? He got away. He ran into the darkness of the black of the back lot, found a big truck and went under it, and up into the frame where he could not be seen. He listened to the gang saying shit like, 
quote, we have to kill this guy now, end quote. And, quote, yeah, we better, or we're all in real trouble, end quote. Eventually, these thugs realized they were now five in number, not six, and went to find their buddy barely able to breathe uh, and beat feet to the hospital where they were all later arrested. The Marine went across the road and dialed 911 from a payphone and sat bleeding, waiting for the cops and paramedics. Tell me how MMA is the best training to deal with that. Best is just a way of trying to convince yourself that you are better than others based on your style or system. Let me tell you, in the real violent, bloody, and life-and-death world, the best system is survival by any means necessary. I don't think that Marine knew any martial arts other than basic Marine hand-to-hand, but what saved his life was running and hiding. If I was going to develop a system of uh, a fighting system that was supposed to be considered the, quote, best, end quote, that technique would be part of it. I don't know, but I think it is being in places where people try to kill each other for real that makes me take a different view than most. Working with Val and the KG, of the KGB also opened a little bit of my eyes that needed it. He told me simple ways to kill people in a crowded street and walk away with no witnesses. That told me how vulnerable we really are. This is my perspective when I talk about the limitations of martial arts. I want to take you back. This, As I said, everything I told you, including the guy getting hit with a hammer, who ended up dead, by the way, from a single blow with a ball-peen hammer to the back of his head, um, or things that I was either there when they happened or I saw the aftermath of them happen. This Marine story is absolutely truth. He stood uh, a, a bit down for me in formation every day. And I heard the story after we saw his you know, results. He, he was back in, in formation by Monday morning of that weekend and had what looked like one of his ears had literally been torn completely in half and it was stitched back together. He was bloodied, he was bruised, he was beaten, and this guy was tough. He was one of those tough, stocky guys. I think he was probably had some uh, island genetics, either Filipino or Samoan. And you guys that have dealt with people like that that are big and tough and of that background, you know there's something about their build that they are really tough guys. They, they really, really are. And, uh, you know, he told me the story. And I want so that you get it, because I think some of you even listening now aren't getting it. I want you to think about this. You've been attacked by six people. As far as you're concerned, completely unprovoked. They've attacked you violently. Your ear is torn in half on one side. If you feel your, your, your ear, it's warm and hot and you feel the blood coming down your neck. They, they mean you serious injury. At least that's what you're thinking. And then you hear them discussing among themselves that if they find you, they are going to kill you because now they feel trapped. They probably never intended to kill the guy in the first place. They got themselves into a position where they were heightened up and they had now decided collectively as a group, the only way to save ourselves is kill this guy and get rid of the body. You're dealing with that. That's real. I want you to put yourself in that man's position. Broken fingers. Shredded ear. The other ear was messed up too, but the one is just shredded. Face. Dripping blood and afraid that they'll hear the blood dripping. And realize where you are. And six, well five, because one was, he almost ripped the guy's throat out. Uh, and that was part of how he got away. And being in that situation. And you're going to argue about whether MMA or Jeet Kune Do or Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is the best martial art. <laughs> This is the real world. And sadly, when it comes to preparedness, there's day-to-day -day where there's situations where conflict arises, where there's some level of a rule to society, and even the aggressor generally is going to follow some sort of a formula or rules. But you never know, you never know when you're going to end up at this extreme. And if society breaks down, this extreme becomes more real. Martial arts can make you faster in your response, quicker to adapt, give you certain techniques that can be used. But if six guys are trying to stomp your head into the ground, you're not going to be Bruce Lee. And you know what? Bruce Lee wouldn't have been Bruce Lee. 
you want to tell me what the perfect martial art is, I would tell you it would be the one that gives you the best chance of survival. And it should include extrication, de-escalation, and running the hell away is part of the system. I'm going to tell you something else that I think a lot of martial artists have a tendency to do that I think is a huge mistake. The most amazing martial artist I've ever met in my life, really met and, 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 and actually you know, got beat up by, got thrown around by, was disarmed with, we don't use, you know, Val, it's almost scary because he won't use a training knife. He hands you a real knife and says, cut me, go ahead. And, and, and to be disarmed so simply, with no effort, so many times, in a row, to have him hand you an airsoft gun and, and, and back up three steps and say, go ahead, shoot me. That would lead me to the conclusion that, well, the best martial arts system, look what this guy can do. But studying Sistema doesn't make me Valryazanov. Studying Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu doesn't make you one of the Gracies. Studying Jeet Kune Do doesn't make you Bruce Lee. Mastering any of those and becoming extremely proficient at it still doesn't make you as skilled or as good as the people that made the arts themselves famous. You're not them because you study their art. And I think people tend to say the reason that my art is superior is because look at these great people that participated in it. Yeah, and I can probably go find you some 350-pound guy in a pair of bib overalls that turns a pipe wrench every day that could beat any of them to death in the right circumstances and in the right situation, maybe with that pipe wrench, including my buddy Val. The most important thing Val taught me is that if somebody targets you specifically to kill you and you don't know it and they do, your odds of survival are extremely low no matter how unskilled they are and no matter how skilled you are. Because as long as they can think, they can give themselves a complete advantage before the attack ever occurs. And if they can really think, they can kill you and the action was taken and a second has passed, and you still don't even know you've been injured. This is how vulnerable we really are. Martial arts play a role in keeping us alive. But if we don't take the real world of what real combat is, what real life and death is, and temper their limitations, we're actually doing more harm than good with confidence. Confidence can keep you from being a victim. We discussed that yesterday. Yes, the confident person walking down the street that doesn't look like a victim is less likely to be attacked. But the overconfident person that overplays their hand because they believe that now they're, now they're able to look after themselves, now they're able to stand up and fight, now that anybody that's not also a mixed martial artist is screwed and they run into Billy Bob and Jim Bob, You know, the same mom and different dads, but look suspiciously like each other anyway, beyond brothers. Because maybe they're different dads or brothers, who knows, all right? Or that runs across a couple people from MS-13, who you looked at the wrong way. All of these scenarios immediately bring us to the limitations of what these arts and this training does for us. It's like lifting weights every day, doing it the right way, following a system and building up your strength in your body will make you stronger. Someone's always stronger than you are, unless you're the strongest man alive. Most of us are never going to be, there will only be one of those at any one given time in history. And hit the strongest man alive right below his right kneecap with a pipe. And he's 400 pounds of muscle rolling around on the ground. That's real. That's real. Very few people are capable of any sort of real defense with a hyperextended knee. I had a sergeant in the army. This is not a combat thing. This is just what happens. 
were playing soccer, and he took a kick to the knee and hyperextended his knee. It wasn't even a long-term injury. It just was an initial acute injury. He couldn't stand. This was a tough guy. This guy was, I mean, this guy, we played other games that were a lot tougher than soccer, and I'm telling you, this guy was tough as nails. And he's like, let me up. We were holding him, so we're like, fine, we let him go. He went right to the ground. He could not support, even though he could take the pain, he could not support his body weight with his leg. It was impossible. There are mechanical injuries that can occur that way. And there's far more serious mechanical injuries that can occur, blunt injuries that can occur, laceration injuries that can occur in a conflict. Don't you love the martial artist that talks about disarming an opponent with a knife but says expect to get cut? They have no idea what one cut can mean or do. There's a lot of nonsense in martial arts and martial arts systems. And there's a lot to love. And where you start to go into the realm of nonsense is when you go beyond what's reasonable, beyond what's practical, and beyond what's real, and beyond the limitations of what martial arts can do for anybody. I can take someone and put them into a martial arts study program and they can go for 20 years. I can travel all overseas and do it. I know someone who did. Neil Franklin, my, my partner, he, 25, 30 years now, martial arts. Been to schools, literally, I mean, the guy's a millionaire. So he, when he wants to go somewhere, he just goes all over the world. Studied with some of the most amazing people in the world, including the guy I keep talking about, Val. Incredibly gifted as a martial artist. But I can go downtown on any given night in a biker bar and find someone that will beat the crap out of him. He's smart enough to know it, though. I'm just suggesting that no matter how long you study, no matter what you study, the debate about what's best is moot. Because in the end, you are who and what you are. And while martial arts can make you better, it can't make you what you are not. And in these real world scenarios what really separates survivors from those that die is a will to live and I would rather have fighting at my side a 150 pound person who's never had a second of martial arts training in their life that wants to live so bad they'll do anything to survive from remove eyeballs to run away and hide. And whatever's best, whatever's best right now, wherever my instinct, wherever my gut takes me, that's what I'm going to do. Whatever it takes. I'd rather fight at the side of that person than an overconfident person with 20 years of martial arts history. And that's the reality. Unless that person is one of these elite people. Just never let the elite person... Become the art. Never let the elite person become the art. Because most of these people that are that good, that are that elite, would be that good or that elite in any art. And that lethal in any art. And when they're put into a position where, yeah, they're, what they're doing isn't really the but they just automatically shift on their own. Please understand, there are people that are simply gifted athletes and gifted fighters right from the beginning. And some of those people are damn deadly if they're never given one course in boxing or kickboxing or martial arts or anything anything approaching that. Some people are just good at it. And when those people become extremely proficient in a martial art, they become an icon for that particular style. And then we start debating, well, the style's better because my hero's better than your hero. Folks, it's a lot like when you were little kids and you're debating about my dad can beat up your dad. Your two dads probably want nothing to do with fighting each other. They're probably smarter than that. And your icons that you hold up in these different arts feel the same way. They have no desire to fight with each other. They have no desire to prove that what they do is the best. It's just the best for them. I suggest if you're going to work and study martial arts, you put a huge emphasis on the centering components that bring mind and body together as one, the discipline, the timing, the strength, the fitness, 
and most heavily on the concept of the word art itself. These are all studies of how the body moves and responds. And that's where they're at their most beautiful and their greatest potential to advance us as human beings. Because when we're in these combat scenarios, we're at our most primal, not our most advanced. So while martial arts is taking us into a position where we are more advanced human beings, that works to a point. And then there's a breaking point where which animal instinct, will to survive, are more important than any technique. Please remember that as you pursue and study any martial art. And don't think anything that I've said is a negative for martial arts in and of themselves. It's just an honest, real look at the limitations. And that covers that for me today. And I feel people will hear that and either understand it or simply not want to. All right, moving on. Um, I wish I could say we're going to a, a happier subject, but even though it's not a happy subject, we did have a good time in this interview, Caroline and myself. Uh, we're going to talk about simple burials, what a simple burial is. Is it legal? What things are needed? How you do it? Uh, what do you need to know? Uh, and, you know, if society breaks down, what do we need to know? What, it, what is the simplest way to, to safely bury someone when there is no systems of support? And why we need to talk about death before it happens. And with that, hey, Caroline, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hi, thank, thanks for having me. So we have kind of a unique subject today. I mean, we're going to talk about death and dealing with death's consequences today. Yeah. And that's something a lot of people aren't the most comfortable with, but I think it's a conversation from time to time we need to have. In particular, when I've got your guest survey, you wanted to talk about something called a simple burial. Uh, and, and like most things that have been lost in our time, what is simple is now not so simple for people to understand. So can you just start out with what a simple burial is? Well, a simple burial is uh, what we've been doing for thousands of years. It basically, it is preparing the body. I mean, if you have time washing the body and uh, wrapping it in a shroud and, and burying it in the ground. It, it, it's not a, a huge production, and uh, it just takes time, basically. And, you know, what, what things are needed and, and how exactly do we do this? Okay, well, I, on our site we have a, a, a resource which is called the Home Funeral Planning Guide. So you can look at all the different things. So if you wanted to do it more extravagantly, um, you need to have uh, soap and uh, essential oils. You need to have water. You need to have tweezers if you want to make the, the person look the way you want. Uh, you need to have cloth, uh, towels, a basin, things like that uh, to, to fully wash the body. There's a, there's a whole long list of things. It's sort of like your, your death kit, your funeral kit, that you can take with you if you are a practitioner uh, to different places. But basically, if you just need the basic thing is water, good soap, uh, you would want to make sure that the, the mouth is cleaned um, and uh, the ears, uh, the whole body is cleaned. It's like every day we take a bath. Well, but you, you bathe the body. Uh, you wash the hair. If, if it's a man, you shave, shave his face. If it's a woman, uh, you might want to check out, make sure her, her nails are nice. Uh, and things like that. Just lovingly uh, take care of the body. As you would take care of your newborn baby, you have to do it. You have to clean the body of someone who you love so that they're ready uh, to be put into the ground. So, I mean, one of the things that, You know, we, when, I've, when I've looked at the death care industry, I've, I've seen it as a, a way to, uh, to make money on people at their, their most vulnerable when they've lost a, a loved one. And there's a lot of things that we're told have to be done. So is this approach legal today? It's legal in every state. Uh, in Illinois, we have to uh, engage a funeral director to do this for us, which we are... There's legislation pending in in the state right now to have it changed. We were we contacted a state our state representative and she's bringing it forward for us. Uh, so in some states and you'd have to check, you are able to clean your own 
your own loved ones and, and take care of this yourself. But here we have to engage a funeral director to do that for us. But a body, no one ever, ever, ever needs to be embalmed. And a body can stay well, good for three days in a room temperature of about 70 degrees or lower. A body could be well intact and not not doing things you don't want it to do. Um, that's why in, in many cases they want you to, a lot of funeral homes will want you to do it, to do direct burials so they hardly even touch the body and they take the body to the cemetery. Um, but that's not true. I have done a lot of secret shopping recently, which is a lot of fun. Um, and some funeral directors will tell me straight up that they can preserve a body un- unembalmed naturally for as long as uh, seven days in the, refriger- in the refrigerator which they all have. Well, it's, I, I hate to draw the comparison, but as someone that's done a lot of hunting and, and hung a lot of deer in, uh, in, in chilled environments, I, I can completely tell you that that's the truth. And, but I think even with just three days in, in normal conditions, that maybe alleviates the concerns of a lot of people because what people are wanting is that opportunity to say goodbye. They want that opportunity for a viewing. They want the deceased to look decent if it's an open uh, open casket style arrangement. So that alleviates fear then for people, right, that they don't have that opportunity to basically have that. Because to me, and I know some people will differ with me on this, and that's fine because everybody has their own beliefs. The funeral is not for the deceased so much to me as it is for those who have, who have been left behind. Absolutely. And it's their closure. So they, when people want that, what you're saying is we don't need these you know, tens of thousands of dollars that are invested sometimes to do this in a, in a sane, rational way that gives people the time to do that. Absolutely. And a lot of funeral homes will um, not allow you to even have a viewing if you don't have embalmed, embalmed bodies, which, you know, to my way of thinking, it's their policy, but you legally can have one and you have to really work hard. This is the problem with the funeral industries, but at the time of death, you don't have the strength to go and say and fight with the funeral director that, you know, this is legal and I want it this way. You really have to know beforehand what you're getting into before death so you can do what you want at the time of death. Being simple sometimes is, it takes a lot of planning, you know. But but it didn't always. I mean, isn't this just what everybody did? I mean, when did when did the modern methodology of funerals and, and the death care industry become what it is today? Well, it really took root, uh, firmly took root in the early part of the 20th century because often people would uh, lay the person out, and they call that laying out, in, in, the, in the home, in someone's front parlor. Uh, but towards the beginning of the last century, people had lived in apartments and smaller dwellings where they didn't have a place, a parlor to have a funeral. So they engaged a funeral director to have it at the funeral home. So that it's been about a hundred years. Uh, embalming some was, happened, we all know, maybe we don't all know, uh, during the Civil War. But it, it, that was very, very expensive. And very few people could actually afford it. And a lot of the embalmers... Uh, would, uh, you know, <laughs> strong-armed families to send them money to embalm their, the bodies. Uh, and if people couldn't afford, sometimes they would take cadavers off the battlefield and have them in the storefront embalming places just to sort of demonstrate their, their wares. It's kind of, it's, they have a kind of a grisly beginning. I mean, that was really kind of the genesis of, of what we call modern embalming anyway, because... It was the first time in, in, in modern history that an average person, if they had the money anyway, could have a loved one who had died far away brought home to be buried in uh, and, and still look like who they were when they got there. They weren't just brought home in a in a sealed casket and buried. They actually could be viewed. Right, exactly. So, I mean, and this is not something that's really that unusual. I remember when I was researching uh, moving to Costa Rica, I decided not, it was not in the cards for me, but at one time I was thinking maybe I need to just get out of this craziness, and <laughs> and it seemed like a, a pretty uh, uh, interesting place for an American to expatriate to. And one of the things that I read from an expat living there was that funerals in Costa Rica are done very much the way you're describing, and they usually take place the day of or the day after the, the deceased becomes deceased, 
and that people actually find out that you know so and so down the road died like daily announcements on televisions like in cafes and, and bars yeah and I, I what I like that I'm hearing from you is one of the problems that seemed to create for people there was there was no time for a widow let's say to adapt. I mean, her husband's being buried maybe six or seven hours after he, he's died, and there wasn't that day or two where they, you know, I mean, it's impossible to think of what it's like until it happens to you, I guess, but some level of composure is gathered. Yeah, well, yes, and I think a lot of that was sold to the American public. What is it? Jessica Midford talks about gracious living and gracious dying. I think the whole idea of, well, the Joneses have this elaborate funeral and why don't you have one? It's something that kind of speaks to the American soul and at, at some level. You know, we should be grand. We should be like kings. But, you know, we really are simple beings. We're simple creatures. Human beings are not necessarily kings and queens. We're just who we are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things I've always struggled with is the need for vaults. <laughs> um, I I remember when we uh, had to take care of the death of a loved one, and we went. We selected a casket, and it, right away you don't want to select the the cheapest, chintziest looking casket. You feel like you have to put some kind of uh, you know uh, something decent for this person who's gone now. And then the next thing we were told is you needed a vault because the earth would settle or some crap, and the, you know <laughs> it would be danger to the environment and. Just none of that's really made any sense to me. It doesn't make sense because it's not true. I, I mean, I worked, this is one of the reasons why I got into this this topic, was I worked at a cemetery. And, uh, well, uh, we didn't agree on how the world was, so I, I don't work there anymore. But okay. I got to know the grounds crew very well because my mother was a teacher. She always told me you should, the, the janitors and the secretaries had the power, so that's who you have to befriend and I think that's true. People who actually do the work are the people you have to know. Uh, anyway, he uh, told me that all vaults, all vaults fail. They all fail. And they have nothing to do with anything except that they maintain the ground for uh, mowing lawns. They don't do anything except maintain the lawns. Now, in the cemetery I worked at, the, the, the plots were so close together because, you know, you have to make money. Uh, that probably it served the purpose of maintaining the integrity of where your grave was supposed to be. Okay, so you didn't fall into your 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 neighbor's grave, for lack of a better so term. So they could just dig the right amount of space to put the vault in, so they could put you in. So they, yeah, you're not impeding on anybody's property line, so to speak. <laughs> but yeah, no, the vaults don't do anything, and they try to sell uh, how they you know preserve the the ground from getting from getting to the body. Every, every, the whole thing about the death industry is trying to sell that you the idea that your body is never going to decay. It's, it's sort of like you have to be a pharaoh. You know, your body, your body is supposed to decay. We're supposed to go back to the earth. We're, that's the way of life. You know, things live. They die, they go back to the ground, and then they can become whatever that is, and then something else grows up from it. That's and I, I'm not suggesting we just leave our dead laying around no, in the no. open. Um, but on that note, I mean, one thing I have to point out when people start talking about how dangerous it would be if we went away from all of this is, one, we didn't have it for, well, 99% of human history. <laughs> but two, large animals fall over and die in the forest every day. That's right? what they, they just fall over and they die, and nature takes its course from there. Yes. No one's getting upset about somebody dying in the woods if you're an animal. No one gets upset about that. And somehow like think grizzly bear that weighs fifteen hundred pounds that exactly. represents six human beings eventually dies and somehow nature manages. Yeah. We're not being infected by their disease. Bodies don't carry disease necessarily. And very often at the point of death, whatever the disease you have stops being uh effective in the body. The viruses stop living in the body very close after death, for the most part. Didn't the whole six feet under thing start with the king during the plague or something like that? I don't know. I <laughs> my 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 uh, partner and I we she always gets me to do the scary stuff. So I I called <laughs> called a, a body farm, and I asked about how far down the body needs to be buried, 
and it, he told me that it has everything to do with insect activity. Now, the farther down you go, the colder the earth is, the fewer the bugs, the longer the body can be preserved in the earth. So at about five feet, which is how deep a cemetery usually digs their graves these, year, these days, uh, is where the, animal, the bug activity sort of ceases. So if you bury yourself a little more shallow, your body will decay faster. That's not necessarily a horrible thing, though. No, it's not. I, I, I don't really understand the In fact, to me, that would be more natural because um, I, I, some people have uh, certain religious beliefs that the, 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 you know, they'll be called back someday in a second coming, and uh, different religions have different versions of that. But none of those are predicated, even in those belief systems, on the body remaining intact. I mean, that was ancient Egypt that had that kind of a concept. It, it, it is, it's not suspected by a, a Christian then that if you were burned up in a fire that you wouldn't be part of that. So I don't even understand the desire for the body to be preserved other than something that the living are holding on to. I agree with you. I don't really understand that either. I've always tried to tell people, when I'm gone, if you want to have a place to remember me or something, pick a place I went fishing. Right. Because wherever you scatter my ashes or bury me, I'm not there. Exactly. So, um, now, we talked a lot about funeral homes, and we talked about cemeteries here. Are there places, states, etc., or ways by which a person can take care of 100% of uh, funeral and burial, including burying on their own private land? Yes, most states allow you to bury, uh, to take care of your, your dead and bury on your own land. Even Illinois, uh, which is where I am, uh, allows you to bury on your own land. You have to contact the comptroller's office, and it's $5 to register your land as burial grounds. It's really, the cemetery and the funeral industry doesn't necessarily want you to know that, but if you do, it doesn't cost cost much to set aside your own personal land uh, for that purpose. So basically, I have to set aside a piece of my land that's dedicated to that. Is that the the way yeah, that works? That's the idea. Like you know, you see the. Uh, I, I always go back to the the uh, Lincoln childhood home. There's a little cemetery there, right by the by the house. So there's a they always people used to have their own family cemeteries not far from where their homes were. Where I grew up, in, the reason I'm asking is where I grew up in Pennsylvania, especially as you drive out into the Dutch Amish country and stuff like that, you often see small plots of, of cemetery plots that are obviously part of private residences. I, I just wasn't aware of any hurdles that have maybe come up in the recent time or you know how, how easy it is to still be able to do that, or maybe in some states it's easier than others. Some states are easier than Yes, some states are much easier than others. Now, in Illinois, which is all crazy and, and uh, full of all kinds of strange legislation, you can still even do that in Illinois. It's like they just didn't get to it yet. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> or, or they have other things to be getting, and they're like, "Oh, they're dead. We can't get any more money from them. We're going to get the income. We're going to get the, the death tax anyway. So we might as well let them go." Um, but Probably. when we look at this as preppers. I mean, do you think it's important that that we kind of have this knowledge, even if it's not what we would do in normal times, that if society breaks down, um, do we need to have this as, as a skill set, for lack of a better term? Because, you know, if um, if you can't go to the hospital for, for life support or you can't get, uh, uh, you know, basic foodstuffs, then probably you're not going to be able to run down to the, the cemetery and the, uh, and the mortuary. Uh, to take care of these needs, right? Exactly. I think it's a skill set that, that everyone needs to have, or at least to know about, or know somebody who knows it. It's it's not. It shouldn't be something that people are afraid to do, and it shouldn't be something that is so overwhelming. But having said that, it's also something that you have to think about before the event happens. You, because I, I mean, I've been in grief. Once or twice. Uh, and when grief hits, it's hard for you to manage. And unless you have a plan, it's hard to uh, to move forward. 
you sort of have to know who in your circle can help you or at least uh, have spoken with people who you are close with. If if society is broken down and, and all you have is your own little homestead or a, a clump of people who are living together, that's who you have to talk to about what we're going to do when people die. If someone's in that situation, and I mean, even a lot of the things that we were talking about, like um, you know, essential oils and, and maybe shrouds or, or things that are making it more uh, in tune with what we expect in modern times. Is there like what's the simplest form that that takes you know takes into account basic health concerns and things like that? Uh, basic what happens to a body when it breaks down and odors? Like what's the simplest minimum that you can do to to bury a body sufficiently to account for those things? Uh. Okay. In a very, uh, you're talking about a very stressful situation, right? Yeah. Very stressful. Okay. Then all I would do in a very stressful situation when everything is broken down and there is no law, um, is to probably, uh, I would wrap, I would wrap somebody I love in, in, in a blanket or something and I would bury them in the ground as soon after death as possible if it's stressful. And there's no law. I, I mean, I really believe that we need to follow the, the, the pattern of law. And if there's a, a way to register people's deaths, register the deaths. Sure, sure. You know, all that. I'm talking about the. I'm talking about. Um, let's say a, a situation like people actually dealt with in uh, the Balkans during the sieges, oh. right? There's, there's, you're, you're not. There, there's no one to register anything with. Um, people were were being killed daily, and something had to be done. What you know, if that was your situation, how would you handle it? With what I, you, know? I would find uh, an old blanket and wrap the person I loved in, and I would bury them quickly and do whatever short memorialization prayers or whatever, and then I would have to move on. Sure. You know, sure. Is there like a minimum depth that you would in that scenario? I mean, uh, well. Well, standard is five feet, but, you know, uh, also you, uh, I've read also that it has to be, you should have about 18 inches of ground on top of a cast okay. or shroud. So that's a, you know, kind of ballpark you can work with. And, you know, you have to also consider, this is also important, uh, don't bury them by a stream. So about 500 feet away from a stream or a water, not 500, 150 feet away. Okay. Just because that's a good idea. In probably more than one way, because streams have a tendency during floods to do things like uh, breach their banks and erode, and that could cause uh, things beyond just leaching. It would be a concern. It would also be a concern of basically a scene out of a horror movie if enough people were buried close to a stream bank. I've seen, you know, 30 feet of stream bank completely eliminated in one flood. And, and that just kind of gives you a, a thought you don't want to have of what that could be like if there was a, a even a small uh, funeral area or a burial area there. Right. Absolutely. What are your thoughts on other forms of dealing with a body such as cremation? Uh, well, I personally don't like cremation, but in the industry... The thing about in America and in the industry is that there there are no filters on on the smokestacks, and so all kinds of stuff is shot up into the air. It's just not nice. Um, and people have romantic ideas about cremating in open pyres. The truth of the matter is, it takes a lot of energy to burn a human body, so you really have to be dedicated to that. And I don't think I could be. Okay. Yeah. A lot of energy, a lot of wood, a lot of fuel. Uh, on a bigger subject, and you've kind of alluded to this a little bit already, why do you think that we need to talk about something like death before we're dealing with it? Because it's one of the huge, uh, large stress-producing things in a human person's body. Um, someone who we love uh, and... Uh, I've, I have experienced grief where I don't really necessarily think straight and my emotions are kind of haywire and I don't, I can't really say what I want to say and get what I want. And 
and that is why we have to go back and think before it happens. Uh, I was just thinking this morning about <laughs> Moonstruck when Rose says to the Cosmo, I want you to know that no matter what you do, you're going to die just like everybody else. It's mm-hmm. something that happens to us all. We're all going to die, and we have to face that. It's, it's the reality of life is that once you're born, you're going to die, and at that point, you have to think about it. And people don't want to think about it. I think perhaps it's because they think that means they've failed or it's uh, there's nothing more or I have no idea what it is about their own mortality because I don't fear my own death. <laughs> so I don't understand what it is um, that people fear. But you just you just got to do it. And you have to talk to somebody about it. You have to write it down because <laughs> at the point of death, people may not really remember what you say. Well, yeah, and I think maybe that's like one of the biggest things that that, that causes people stress is they, they're worried about what would he or what would she have wanted. And I think if we can put together for our, I mean, take we say always take responsibility for your life. Well, maybe we need another message of take responsibility for your death, and that's more than life insurance and a will. Instead of having your family wonder what would he or she have wanted, if it's if it's there, then they can go. Well, this this is it. This is clearly it because this is what was left behind. Right. Exactly. It makes it easier on those who you love to do what you want and not wonder. The person that's thinking about that are there certain things that they should really think about, you know, uh, when they're, because I mean, I think maybe the best way to do this would be, would you agree to write it down and maybe like, I, I, I hate saying it this way, but a death checklist, you know, I mean like. Well, I have a, on my site, I have a, a, a planning form and I, I have to tell you, I hate checklists. Okay. Forms make me really edgy. I don't know why. I think it's because I'm not sure what they really want me to say. I don't know. So, but anyway, my form is a lot more free form, so it gives topics what you have to consider. Um, and you can even consider what kind of memorials, because there, there are different ways people can tell the story of your life, and that might be healing for them, and you can look at those. Um, but yeah, you have to write it down. And there are certain things you should keep in mind. Uh in this technology, people might want to, you know, well, I have my playlist ready for it, but we may not be able to have a playlist. Sure. You know, sure. but there are different things that people can consider what they want at their funeral. I mean, I know specifically what kind of um, what flowers I would like, what color, if we can. If not, that's okay. But if we can, that'd be nice. Um, something like that. People know what you want and they don't have to guess. Do you think there's maybe a hesitancy for people to do that? Because it almost feels like, well, once I've got the whole plan done, you know, <laughs> then like, like, like all of a sudden, like, like fate will change or something. Well, my partner and I, we were talking about this last year, and you know, we said, hey, we got to do this. We have to do this. So we wrote it, and it was very freeing to say, this is what I want, and now I can live my life and not worry about it. It's like it's already taken care of. It's already done. It's very freeing. I think it's also important for us to understand that, again, that when we're being buried, take your religious belief and however you apply it to that, at, no matter what, your troubles are done, right? <laughs> so this is about having and, and doing the one thing we can at that point, because whatever you've done, you've done. Right. Right. You ain't going to be doing any more here in this this plane of existence. So it's the last thing you could have done. Yes. For those that are still here. Absolutely. I couldn't say it better. Absolutely. So um, you mentioned you have a website. If if people want to learn more about this, I guess they can use that as a resource. Uh, Yes, it's a good resource. And it's what's the what's the website? Uh, Chicagolandgreenburials.org. And I'll make sure I put a link in the show notes to that. Are there any other um, reading or recommendations or, or sites that cover this topic that you would recommend? My favorite book is Final Rights. It's uh, Josh Slocum's book. Uh, he does the Funeral Consumer Alliance. And in the back is all the laws of every of each state for funerals and burials. And it's a very good resource. 
I'm pulling it up on Amazon right now. I'll make sure I have a uh, a, a link to that as well for people so that they can uh, look it up. I, I appreciate you being with us today and, and taking time to share this with us. I know again, it's not it's not a topic that a lot of people want to discuss, um, but I think that it's a, a topic that needs to be discussed because you know I say all the time if times get tougher, even if they don't. And whether you have societal breakdown or not, we all have a finite period of existence, and every single one of us have to be in touch with the fact that it ends in physical death. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you for being with us today, Carolina. Any final thoughts for folks on, on this, if it's maybe a little bit overwhelming or uh, or if they're a little bit concerned about whether or not, you know, like they say, like, this sounds like something I'd like to do, but they feel that it's going to be difficult or? Well, tickets. Take it slowly, I would say. Some people, it's completely overwhelming. And so I would think take it slowly and just talk to one other person, somebody close to you who you love or somebody who you know you can rely on and just discuss it with them. And begin slowly. You don't have to have the whole plan in your head all at once. You can say, you know, I just want to have a simple burial. What do you think that's going to look like? And then work from there. You know, you, you made me think of something here right at the end that I'd like to get your thoughts on that I think we've lost. When I was a child, all of the older people that I knew, and to me they were ancient because, you know, 80 when you're when you're like five is like way old, right? I mean, 40 is old when you're five. But it seemed like all of the elderly people that I knew that were like aunts and great aunts and, you know, you'd call like ad- adopted aunts and uncles, family, friends in our community – that I would I would talk to that were in their 80s and older would talk about their own life coming to an end and that they would be they would be gone soon and that they, they weren't afraid of that and I think people are afraid to do that today because they think kids are going to be scared of dying but it actually made like death was like to I think children first of all they go well you're 80 I don't have to worry about that right you know I mean, you're 80 because <laughs> um, 80 years to a kid you might as well be you know eternity. Exactly. And I think kids, you know, kind of, but I do think that in that environment, it was a lot easier on people to accept mortality. And that we somehow want to believe now we have this space age world where one day that'll just not be an issue anymore. And I, I think that we've lost something there. Well, you know, my dad, my dad was a, uh, a priest and, uh, and his father was a chiropractor, actually. And they would talk about death at the at the table. We would talk about it and what they wanted, and it was a natural part of uh, growing up. My dad also. I once remember him saying that in the 19th century people talked about death, but they never talked about sex. In the 20th century they talk about sex, but they never talk about death. Huh. And I think that's true. I mean, if people just talk about sex all the time, but they never talk about the other one. <laughs> never talk about death. That's like. Ooh. Well, there's a certain, you can understand why to a degree. One's a little bit more fun than the other, but... You would think so, but in the 19th century, they didn't. Yeah. It's just the way we look at it. It's the way we look at it, and we are afraid of death. We didn't used to be afraid of death so much. I think every individual has a fear at some level, but that, you know, if you, unless something horrible happens to to you when you're young... Um, people that live their entire lives with some level of the concept and and a, you know preparing that that's the eventual fate come to a and this is this is what I think is missing today. These folks had an acceptance, and I think that's something we've lost is an acceptance that this is you know the destiny that awaits us all. And and honestly, I I think that there's been some science fiction about it, but. If you had a society where nobody died, it creates a whole realm of its own problems. Absolutely. Well, again, Caroline, thanks for being with us today. I really appreciate you uh, sharing this information with our listeners. Well, thanks for having me. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spierko today along with Caroline. Okay, I'm going to pause here a second. How the hell do I say that last name? <laughs> By Adenov. By Adenov. Okay, I should be able to sounds Russian or Ukrainian. Serbian. Serbian, okay. All right, let's do that again real quick. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spierko today along with Caroline Vyadinoff, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Nobody up there cares. They're living. 